Well, this morning, what we're going to do in our teaching series is we're, we're about to start a new series. In the mornings, we have been going through Luke's gospel and we came to the end of Luke's gospel last week. Uh, this week, we're going to start a new series looking at helps to persevere in the Christian faith. What does the Bible tell us uh, to encourage us, to motivate us, to challenge us, uh, to persevere in our faith in Christ? It's something that we all need. We all need encouragement in our faith. The New Testament especially warns believers of being presumptuous about the strength of their faith. And it encourages us to meet together for the express purpose of encouraging one another in the faith. That opportunity to meet and encourage is something we've been deprived of over the last few months. And so I hope this series will be especially pertinent to us encouraging us and helping us to persevere. But then there'll be some who I expect need this type of encouragement specifically. Uh, Perhaps as you've been separated from the, the normal church activities over the last few months, your faith has grown so cold that you wonder whether it's worth picking things back up again as we begin to be allowed to meet. Persevering in the faith looks futile. You've managed for so many months without it. Why do you need to pick it back up now? Well, I hope this series will spur you on to remind you of why you believe, to remind you of the value of believing and to spur you on in your faith. Perhaps others, uh, you don't see persevering in the faith as futile. It's not that you don't see the need of it, but rather you wonder whether you're going to be able to. You know that you're a Christian today, but as you consider what might come towards you in the future, you wonder, is your faith really strong enough to ride all those storms that might come your way? Equally, I hope this uh, series will give you biblical reasons to be confident in your faith, knowing that you will be able to persevere to the end following Jesus Christ. And we're going to start our series by looking today at Jesus's words in John chapter six. We're going to focus mainly on verses 35 to 40. And we're going to see mainly that rather than looking towards ourselves when we think about our perseverance, whether that's the motivation to persevere or the confidence to persevere, rather than looking at ourselves, we need to have our eyes turned to Jesus. We need to look to him. He alone is the reason we can be certain of our salvation. He is the motivation to persevere. And he actually is the one who does the work of preserving us in our faith. Now, first, I want to draw your attention to what Jesus says about his mission. Why did he come? Jesus is sent to give life. You've got to understand that the words that Jesus speaks in uh, in the passage that we read come in the context of the feeding of the 5000. I expect most of you will be familiar with that miracle. Jesus takes five small loaves of bread and two fish and he uses those seven pieces of food to feed over 5000 people, not just to give them a little taste, but to fill their bellies, to satisfy their hunger. And the people are so amazed at this miracle that in verse 14, they say, surely this is the prophet that was to come into the world. And they decide that they want to make him king by force. 
But Jesus slips away. And when they eventually catch up with him, Jesus is quite stark in his rebuke of the crowds. Verse 26, Jesus says, essentially, you're looking for me for all the wrong reasons. You're looking for me for the wrong reasons. You, you don't really recognize who I am. You're looking for me not because you uh, you're looking for me because you want more bread, basically. You want your stomachs filled again. You want it could be a metaphor for economic prosperity. You want political freedom. That's why you want to make me king. But that's not the reason I've come, Jesus says. It's not why I've come. In fact, I have been commissioned by the father. I've been sealed by him, he says in verse 27. I've been sealed by the father for a specific task. And that task is not to not to give you food that fills your belly. Not to give you food that spoils. But to give you food that endures to eternal life. And so by the time we get to the verses that we're considering today, verse 35, Jesus is then just saying, he's not just saying, I've come to give you eternal life. He's saying, I am the bread of life. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Look, physical bread those things that I gave you on that on that hillside, they sustain your physical body. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He is the food that endures to eternal life. And it's that kind of life, eternal life, that Jesus has come to offer. What is eternal life then? Later in John's gospel, Jesus will begin a prayer by saying, this is eternal life. This is the life that I have come to give them. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is a life knowing God. It's a life in relationship with God, our creator. Eternal life could, could otherwise be described as release from the grip of darkness that so characterizes this world release from sin and slavery to sin eternal life is the life that we were designed for the spiritual life in relationship with god but the eternal life is not it's not all just spiritual and intangible the eternal life though it is spiritual also includes bodily resurrection and so three times in the passage that we read jesus says These people will be raised up at the last day, the people who believe in him. Verse 39, um, I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. Verse 40, I will raise them up at the last day. Verse 44, I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus says, I am the living bread in verse 51. And if you eat of me, you will go on living forever. The life that Jesus promises his followers is a life that goes beyond death. And so by definition, it is a gift. It is life that that far surpasses anything that we can be searching for if we're just looking for the physical life. 
that these uh, bread hunters were looking for. No matter how much bread Jesus gave them, it would end in death eventually. No matter how much political freedom Jesus gave them, it would still end in death. Jesus has come to give a far greater gift. He has come to give eternal life, life that goes beyond death, life that never spoils. In fact, life that only gets better and better and better. Now, we have to ask if we're considering the issue of perseverance in our Christian faith. Why bother? Why persevere? What is the benefit? What is the reason to sticking it out? Perhaps you continue to join the church, you continue to meet with other Christians, you continue to read and pray because, or maybe you feel the social pressure. Maybe your family put restrictions on you. Maybe, maybe because you feel the social benefit of being part of the church. You've got friends here, friends who care for you. Perhaps it's because you believe Jesus will answer your prayers for joy or success or health. Whatever else you might be praying for, happiness. But if these are if these are the only reasons that you have for persevering in the faith. Then you need to know that that none of those reasons are really the reason that Jesus came. And ultimately, all of those things are destined to spoil. The furthest they can get you is to give you happiness and joy through this life. And then they run out. Jesus has come to offer a far greater gift. He's come to offer eternal life. And working for eternal life gives us a far more secure motivation because we know that we're working, we're persevering, we're holding on for a gift that is by nature far better than anything else that we could be chasing for. And so we persevere because we understand Just what it is that Jesus is offering us. Just how valuable this gift is that Jesus has come to give us. A gift that cannot be found any place else. A gift that cannot be surpassed in worth. We persevere for the life that Jesus offers. So in verse 35, Jesus has offered himself as the bread of life. The only true source of lasting satisfaction. But then in verse 36, he begins to anticipate an objection. Uh, Verse 36, as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. The objection might be this. Well, Jesus, you've come to give life. But here is this crowd of people following you. And you're saying they're not going to accept the life. What does this make for your mission then? Does this mean your mission is in danger? Well, Jesus' response is far from it. My mission is not in danger. In fact, I am being given a people. Jesus is given a people from God the Father. In verse 37, Jesus is clearly not worried that his mission is under threat. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. God has a people, that is a a group, a, a collective, who are set apart and destined to receive the life that Jesus offers. And Jesus is uh, God is giving these people to Jesus the Son. How is God achieving that? 
How is God giving the people to the Son? Is it that he, he does it by force? He, he, he takes hold of our will and emotions and he just twists them into a direction that we wouldn't want to, to otherwise go and forces us to believe. Not at all. Jesus goes on, the only requirement for us to receive the gift of life is that we believe in Jesus, the Son. Um, he said that in verse 29, the work of God is this, believe in the one he sent. He says it throughout this uh, discourse. Belief is the requirement for receiving this life. And God achieves that belief in us, not by forcing our will, by taking it in a, in a direction that we wouldn't otherwise want to go. Instead, he does it by, well, look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. God doesn't push us in a direction we don't want to go. He He draws us. He wins us. Verse 45, he teaches us. And this teaching is a fulfillment of what the prophets have written about. Uh, Jeremiah spoke about God writing his law on our hearts, showing us what is good and what is right and what is beneficial. Ezekiel taught about about us being given a new spirit from God. Joel taught about the, the spirit coming on us in order that we might live in a way that serves and pleases and honors God. You know, if you think about creation, when God spoke at creation, he spoke light. Let there be light. And what happened? Well, light came into being. How could it how could it not come into being if God had said, let there be light? In a similar way, when God speaks into our hearts, when he teaches us, when he reveals his truth to us, how can we do anything else but respond to the speaking of God to respond to that truth? And to believe in his son. Now, if we are those people who God has taught to believe in this man, in, in this way, if we're the people who recognize who Jesus is, that he's not just a good teacher, but that he's the one come down from heaven, as he described himself here, uh, that he is the one who allows us to see the character of God, who is revealing God to us. If we have been taught by God to look to Jesus, not just for the answers to prayer he might give, not just for the benefit for this physical life, but to receive the gift of eternal life that he has really come to give. If we are the people whose confidence in receiving that eternal life is no longer in ourselves, but in Jesus. If we are those people God has taught, drawn, given to the son. Then we know That by its very nature, the faith that we have been given is a persevering faith. Because it doesn't have its origin in our decision. It has its origin in the plan of God. You could make a a comparison to illustrate the point. Let's say you've got an employee who is convinced that he has got a job for life. Now, there is a certain sense in which an employee can be certain that he's got a job for life. You work for a big company with with uh, a strong reputation who's uh, got a, a stronghold of the market in which they serve and work. And you're well qualified for your job uh, and so on. All these things can give a person a sense of assurance that I'm in this job for life. But ultimately, the assurance of that role they have is dependent. 
not least on the company that they work for. You can't be certain that a company will last forever, last for the rest of your working life, but also dependent upon their own performance. Why wouldn't the company get rid of them if they don't meet the mark? Compare then that type of assurance with the assurance that a child has that he will always remain the son or the daughter of their parents. The, the, the assurance that the child has is of an entirely different quality because it's not, it's not dependent upon their own performance. Of course, the child might strengthen or weaken their relationship with their parents in whatever way they act. But the, the relationship of child to parent is, it's there by nature. It just is what they are. That is their father and, and this is their child. In the same way, the assurance that, that Christians have is not one that is dependent upon certain contingencies. But we can be sure that our faith is a persevering faith because it doesn't have its origin in ourselves. It's not that I one day decided to follow this whim and that in the future one day I might fizzle out of enthusiasm and I might turn away and find something better to fill my time with. No, that's not that's not the nature of faith at all. Instead, faith is is part of the plan of God, the, the plan that's been in place from before the foundation of the world, the plan that's been promised through the prophets for hundreds of years, the plan that was made possible once Jesus Christ came and he lived and died in our place. The plan that is realized on the day a person turns from sin and puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Our faith is by nature a persevering faith because it's a faith that doesn't start with us and our ideas. It's a faith that starts with the work of God, God who never changes, God who never lies. But the truth of the father's drawing and giving a people isn't a truth that stands alone in these verses. There's a complementary truth that stands alongside it. Jesus is not only given a people, but he also preserves his people. Verse 37, all that the father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Now, this verse is often taken to mean that anybody who desires to come to Jesus is welcomed. As though Jesus is like the bouncer on the door of a nightclub and there's just no rules about who can come in. And so, yeah, everybody, if you want to come, just come, just come. And, and often this verse is taken to, taken in that sort of way. Um, uh, I will never drive away anyone who comes to me. But I don't think that's what actually John is saying to us, what Jesus is saying to us here. Jesus rather means to say that once you have arrived, once you are in, there is none of those people that Jesus will then subsequently turn away. Once you have been welcomed, you won't be driven out again. And it's only in that sense that verses 38 and 39 make any sense. Verse 38, uh, I have come from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of God. The one who sent me. And what is that will? Uh, verse 39. The will of the one who sent me is that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, 
Notice that he's moved from the collective idea of God having a people now to individuals. I will lose none of the individuals within that group. All of them, every single one of them will be protected and preserved by me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He's saying that he will continue to protect and preserve and keep and treasure and hold his people. Not just as a group that you may or may not be part of, but as individuals. If you have been taught by God, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, he is holding you, preserving you, protecting you. And so one of the one of the chief assurances we can have in our faith. Is that if if Jesus loses me. What must have had to happen for that for that to be the case? Either Jesus is unable to keep me. Or else Jesus has been disobedient to the father's will. And driven me away. We know from the New Testament that Jesus is not unable to do any that anything that the father asks. And he's certainly not disobedient to the father. His will being one and the same as the will of the father. Perhaps you consider your faith and you hear the stories of those remarkable Christians, either throughout history or throughout the world today, who face up to such a strong um, challenge to their faith and who are willing to, to stand by Jesus throughout all sorts of difficulties and storms that come their way. And you wonder, I just don't know if my faith is that sort of faith. I just don't know if my faith is strong enough to persevere through those kind of challenges. I just don't know if my faith would hold if I lost my son or daughter, if I was made bankrupt, if I was whatever might fill that gap for you. I just don't know if I would persevere. Verse 39 ought to bring you encouragement. He will not lose you. He is actively working to protect and to preserve your faith, to keep you close. And so the grace that he gives you today, the faith that he sustains in you today will be strengthened and upheld and protected and preserved, whatever challenges might lay on the road ahead. Perhaps your issue is not whether you'll stand in the future. Your issue is that you wonder whether you've already blown it. You consider your sin far too great. You wonder why Jesus would accept you. You consider yourself already to have slipped out of his loving care. You could never be welcomed back, you reason. But it's a lie. It's a lie that the devil feeds you. Jesus will never drive away any of those who have come to him. It's not Jesus that prevents you from return, returning to him. True, you might have sinned. True, you might be seeing the, the fullness and the severity of your sin. But won't you take that as the voice of the father teaching you, prompting your conscience, showing you the character of his son and the nature of the people within his kingdom, showing you his goodness? 
And won't you respond to the teaching of the father? Not by giving up hope and turning away from the son, but by believing in him, returning to him, having your sins washed clean and staying within the care and protection of Jesus, your saviour. Or perhaps as a believer in Christ, your faith right now is strong. It's marked by by joy and a willingness to serve. In that case, then, I hope today's teaching has been a reminder to you of the, the goodness and the grace that we have received in the gospel. And of the assurance it is to know that safety that we have in Jesus Christ. That he has his hand around us, that he continues to preserve and care and protect us. And he will continue to do so because his task is not to lose any one of those that God has given. Not until the day when he will raise us up at the last day. My father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. We give Jesus praise and thanks for his ongoing care, protection and preservation for us.